Welcome to the Minor Consult, where I speak to the leaders shaping our world in diverse ways. Today I'm joined by Scott Gottlieb, a venture capitalist, author, and former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. In 2021, he published Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic, one of my favorite reads from the past few years. Throughout his career, Scott has been a consummate leader, navigating fraught issues and serving as a trusted voice in crisis. Scott, welcome. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Scott, when I talk with physicians on this podcast, I'm always interested in what sparked their interest in medicine. And your path is a bit unusual as you pursued a parallel track in business and economics from your undergraduate days onward. What made you decide to become a physician and combine your career with a focus on business and policy in addition to medicine? Yeah, I'd actually worked in investment banking before I went to medical school. Um, I was a healthcare analyst at an investment bank, and I, I always wanted to be a doctor. So I was pre-med in medical in college. I had applied to medical school. I had deferred admission to do the two years at an investment bank as an analyst um, focusing on healthcare. Look, I, I love the profession. Uh, I like the idea of lifelong learning. I like the idea of having direct contact with patients and, and the service model. Uh, that was embodied by medicine, but all through medical school, you know, as I progressed through medical school, I continued to be engaged in policy issues and public health issues, writing, as you mentioned, on a lot of um, business issues, sort of the intersection of innovation and public health and clinical medicine. And through that writing um, that I was doing in medical school, I worked on the staff of the Journal of the American Medical Association and the British Medical Journal and was publishing op-eds in, in different newspapers. And through that writing, was able to get engaged in policy that ultimately led me to Washington and the positions that I held. And you've been in the private sector for about a decade when you were nominated to be the 23rd commissioner of the FDA. Why did you decide to take the role and uh, what did you hope to accomplish when you went to head the FDA? Look, when I went in, I had a, a pretty defined policy agenda of what I wanted to work on. I wanted to implement the tobacco regulation. It hadn't been implemented. The law had been passed, but the regulations hadn't been implemented. And I felt that um, successful implementation of those regulations could be the most profound public health measure that we were able to achieve um, in terms of trying to reduce death and disease. And I also had an agenda around trying to foster competition in, um, in, with generic drugs. I had very defined ideas about what I thought we could do. I felt that there was a lot of places um, in drug development where the rules were written to try to foster generic competition, but companies were either gaming the process in certain ways or there were certain market failures that were preventing the kind of competition that we were expecting to see. And so that was another thing that I wanted to work on. And in the third big tranche, when I was coming into the job and what I committed to do at my, my congressional hearing and in the meetings I had with senators uh, was work on the opioid addiction problem. And there I, I had a, a, a vision that we needed to change the mindset of how the agency perceived its role relative to the addiction crisis, um, viewing the agency's regulatory tools as a means to try to reduce prescribing and rationalize prescribing and that we can no longer um, view the the issue of diversion of opioids and the misuse of opioids is purely a law enforcement matter. It was also a public health matter, and the agency needed to use its public health tools to try to affect that. You know, previously, the agency had had a view that the completely illicit use of opioids, so if you diverted opioids and used them in a completely illicit fashion, that wasn't something that necessarily fell within the agency's purview. It was, it was a law enforcement issue. 
And I felt differently. I felt that the agency bore um, an obligation to try to use its regulatory tools to affect even the illicit use of drugs. And within the first two months of my role at FDA, we withdrew the um, opioid drug Opana ER from the market purely on a side effect that manifested itself when it was used in illicit fashion. So it was the first time a drug was ever withdrawn because of a safety issue that only became apparent when the drug was used in an illicit fashion, in this case, when it was crushed and injected. Following up on that point, um, FDA commissioners constantly navigate this complex path of defining regulation, uh, deciding when to apply regulation, and also at the same time, uh, wanting to encourage innovation uh, that will lead to better therapeutics or better preventions for disease. And during your tenure, many commented on how you struck a balance uh, in, in the ways you just described between more or less regulation or when to apply regulation in a certain fashion. What guided your decision making on issues, given that there's so many stakeholders that the FDA interfaces with, um, and there's so many perspectives on uh, how the regulations are developed and applied? Well, look, I, I saw product regulation as a tool that could help advance public health. And, and there's two ends of that spectrum. I mean, there's more than two ends of that spectrum. But um, on the one hand, you can use product regulation to try to protect consumers. And we did that um, by making sure industries are appropriately regulated, making sure people aren't marketing drugs in ways that could create risk for consumers. And that cuts across the agency's entire portfolio. You know, we, we dealt with issues around cosmetics substances that were being put in cosmetics that could create risk. We dealt with issues and tried to um, expand the agency's scope when it came to dietary supplements and sought new regulation. But there were also areas where you could use product regulation to try to foster new innovation. Um, you know, in two of the areas where we put a lot of focus was when it came to in vitro diagnostics, trying to create a more modern architecture for the, uh, the approval of diagnostic tests, things like next generation sequencing and multivariate tests where the agency was trying to apply an old regulatory paradigm, basically trying to apply the medical device paradigm to a new field with the existing rules. I didn't think, and many of people agreed with me, including the people in the agency, didn't think were properly suited. And there we tried to work with Congress to craft new legislation that ultimately resulted in the Valid Act, which is now before Congress. Another area where we spent a lot of time and probably the first area that I took up when I got there was around cell-based therapies, where the agency historically had taken a view that um, it wasn't going to regulate cell-based therapies because it viewed them as falling within the scope of the practice of medicine, so it exercised enforcement discretion. But that was a controversial position, and what we saw happening was a lot of stem cell clinics growing up that were offering really unproven therapies to consumers that were creating risks. And what I, what I came to believe in working with Peter Marks and the people in the Biologic Center who were very invested in this was that we could step into the field, apply regulation to try to shut down clinics that were creating risk for consumers and marketing unproven products in ways that um, were taking, we felt taking advantage of consumers. And we had ample evidence of consumers who were being harmed by certain products while creating a very efficient path for those who wanted to develop products um, through an appropriate pathway to get those um, cell therapies onto the market. And we created regulatory innovation to make it more efficient for small operators, academic researchers to try to navigate the FDA regulatory process. You know, I felt if we didn't have an appropriate framework in place to both protect consumers and allow new products to come to market in an efficient way, you just weren't going to get the investment capital into the space 
and the kind of sound product development that ultimately was going to allow a lot of these therapies to go forward. And so we issued a whole series of guidance documents that laid out a new pathway and started to take enforcement action against what we felt were the um, bad purveyors in this field. Ultimately, we got challenged in court. We went to federal court and won some definitive cases that really established the FDA's jurisdiction in that field. So that was a, an example where we sort of burned both ends of the candle. On the one hand, we took enforcement action against people who were marketing uh, unproven illegal products that were creating risk to consumers. And on the other hand, we created a what I felt was a, a new pathway, a more modern architecture to allow uh, products that did ha show promise for consumers to come to market in an efficient way. And the only time that I sent federal marshals in to seize a product in my time at FDA was in a setting of one of these cell-based therapies. There was a, a clinician in California who was creating what he called a, um, a cancer cell therapy by mixing a patient's own adipose tissue stem cells with the vaccinia virus. And basically just mixing, he had obtained smallpox vaccine, which is, as you know, live vaccinia virus um, through means that may not have been uh, totally appropriate and was simply mixing the vaccinia virus with adipose tissue shells, cells derived from a patient, calling it a cancer vaccine. Probably one of the most egregious things that I had seen in my time at FDA, and we, we sent federal marshals in to seize that product and took enforcement action against, against that clinic. Among that list of incredible accomplishments uh, during your tenure as FDA commissioner, is there one that stands out that you're particularly proud of, uh, in particular looking now several years later at what it's led to? Yeah, I mean, I think the issues around the opioids, because my view was that the most impactful thing that you can do uh, in your tenure running a regulatory agency is change the mindset of the agency with respect to a big challenge. You know, simply promulgating a guidance document or a new regulation, that could be very impactful. Um, but the most enduring thing you can do is change the agency's view of its own role relative to a big problem. And with respect to opioids, you know, when I came in, it was we had a lot of debates, um, and including debates around the action we took on Opana ER about whether or not the agency uh, had an affirmative obligation to take regulatory action when it came to the purely illicit use of a product. And I had a view, I think Je Dr. Janet Woodcock agreed, others agreed, that the scope of the opioid epidemic had gotten so large that the agency had to take a much more aggressive, more affirmative role when it came to not just the appropriate use of opioid products, what fell within the labeled use of those products, but also the illicit use. And if we felt that there were ways products were being approved and marketed that were potentiating the illicit use of those products, that fell within the scope of our jurisdiction. And we had to re-adjudicate um, how we approve products, how we evaluate them in the pre-market process to take some accommodation of, of the illicit diversion of those drugs. And I, I think that by the time I left, there was more widespread agreement around that notion. Um, I think there were people who were deeply committed to that idea. Um, and that was a case where the, the mindset of the agency shifted over the period of time, um, you know, in part because of the, a recognition of the nature of the problem and the expansion of the problem over the time period I was there. I think in part because of, you know, the actions we took and the success that we had. I think we proved out the model that the agency had a role to play in that regard. So. That would be the thing that I would point to. I, I would, if someone asked me what I thought was most, you know, sort of important things that we did, it would be the areas where we changed the agency's view of its own role with respect to a big challenge. Within a year after your departure from the FDA, COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic began. 
And from the beginning, you were active in advising the federal government in many states on the response to COVID-19, and you became a very trusted voice uh, in the media. So what compelled you to become such a public presence on COVID-19, and why do you think you were able to gain trust when it's been so difficult for other health leaders to do so? Well, you know, the early, um, you know, like a lot of other things, it progressed over time. So, you know, my role um, commenting on it and providing um, thoughts and opinions and and commentary um, evolved over time as the epidemic evolved. But initially, my first, um, the first things I did, the first articles I wrote, and probably the earliest article I wrote was in late January in the Washington Post, we're focused on my concern that this may become um, a global pandemic, that this would spread to the United States, and that in order to um, mitigate the risk to the U.S., we needed to crash the development of diagnostic tests. And so the very first piece I wrote in the Washington Post in late January was about that issue. I wrote two subsequent pieces in the Washington Post in February. And so my early advocacy um, and my discussions with the White House over this time, the things I was saying on TV was really pounding the table on the need to start development of diagnostic tests because I knew that the lead time to doing that was fairly long. It would take at least six weeks to scale up the production of a test, even if you had a major manufacturer like Thermo Fisher or Kyogen, who is an experienced manufacturer, stepping into that game. And so someone needed to pick up the phone in late January to one of those CEOs and say, you know, we need you to do this. I know it's going to cost you money. You may not be able to recoup it if this, you know, if we're wrong and this doesn't become a a pandemic and doesn't threaten the United States, there'll be no market for these tests. We're not sure Congress is going to step in and backstop that. But, you know, you're a big company. Um, You work with the agency around important public health challenges. We need you to do this. And I guarantee if someone would have picked up the phone and talked to one of those CEOs and one of those major manufacturers, um, they would have responded. Um, Just to give you sort of an, an anecdote, after the Uh, hurricane devastated Puerto Rico in the fall of 2017, we were very worried about the the cascading shortages that could result from that. Fully 10% of all the pharmaceutical products manufactured for patients in the United States were manufactured in Puerto Rico. We worked very aggressively to head off shortages. We subsequently had no shortages coming out of that. But the the one thing, the place where we were acutely concerned was around um, the potential for shortages of blood in the United States, because it turns out that the plastic bags that are used to collect blood and also the plastic bags that are used to um, to make plasma to make um, solutions, you know, like IV solutions that are used in patients in surgery. Those plastic bags are manufactured in a lot of them or most of them are manufactured in Puerto Rico. They're not filled in Puerto Rico, but the bags are made in Puerto Rico and the manufacturing um, factories were down. One of the key components in the manufacturing of those plastic bags was oxygen. Uh, the major oxygen facility in Puerto Rico was down. We couldn't get it restarted because of the energy requirements to run that facility um, were enormous, and we couldn't get enough energy into the facility because uh, all the, the power was down the island. So we were very worried about shortages of blood. And then after the massacre at Mandalay Bay, which happened right around the same time, the concern grew more acute because what happens after a major incident like that is you get a rush of people going out to donate blood. That's how people altruistic people respond to an event like that. And so we were worried that a rush of people going to donate blood would use up the available supply of plastic bags in the United States, and pretty soon you'd have none left and there would be a blood shortage. 
So I picked up the phone and called uh, a manufacturer who was making plastic bags for uh, plasmapheresis that we knew could be converted. The line could be tweaked and converted to the production of bags used to collect blood. And I asked that CEO to do that. Um, and, you know, I couldn't, couldn't guarantee him anything, but I said to him, I'll try to make it up to you. You know, I know this is going to cost you money, cause business disruption. From a public health standpoint, we need you to do this. Um, you know, and we'll try to make it up to you if we can some way, whether it's, you know, trying to get Congress to step in with some funding, not sure what we can do. And, and he wasn't sure that we could do anything at all. Um, but, you know, he sensed the urgency and stepped in to do that. And ultimately, when when they were successful in doing it, I um, went and took some pictures with uh, with the CEO in the factory and tweeted them out uh, to, to, you know, draw some attention to the to the good action of, of that CEO and that group. Um, those are the kinds of things companies do. You know, uh, when, when you ask someone to step up to a public health crisis, good people do the right thing. And I'm quite sure that uh, manufacturers would have stepped in to start mass producing diagnostic tests. And so I, I was frustrated that that wasn't happening. Ultimately, it did happen, but it didn't happen until late February, early March. Um, and it was too late at that point. So we endured the first wave of the COVID crisis without the kind of testing that we needed. And, and the the problem with that, you know, it wasn't just a challenge for cities that had COVID cases like New York, where you couldn't adequately diagnose patients and you had to make a presumptive diagnosis that people were COVID positive, but you also couldn't use diagnostic testing to tell where COVID wasn't. Um, there were a lot of cities we now know during that first wave where there probably wasn't a lot of COVID. I don't think there were a lot of cases in Houston at the time. Um, you know, I don't think there were a lot of cases in Albuquerque or Bozeman, Montana, but because we didn't know, we, we not only didn't know where it was, we didn't know where it wasn't. And so when we had to reach for population-wide mitigation, we ultimately uh, shut down the whole country. And we now know we didn't need to do that. And I think that bred a lot of the acrimony because you know people subsequently realized we didn't need to do that. And when the virus eventually spread to other parts of the country, a lot of people in those parts of the country said, look, you asked us to do this in the spring. We did it. We didn't need to. We're not doing it again. And I think a lot of the acrimony um, and a lot of the sense uh, that the response wasn't well calibrated and coordinated really stemmed from the lack of a diagnostic test. So something as simple as a diagnostic test, I think, had cascading effects that we're still feeling today. Scott, in Uncontrolled Spread, you provide a detailed and very thoughtful analysis of what went wrong in the COVID response, including what, what you just described. Uh, fast forward to today and looking at what's happened since, as well as where we are today in, uh, with regard to COVID-19, where have we improved and where are there still problems that haven't been adequately addressed? Well, I don't know that we've done much to improve, yeah. um, unfortunately. I think that if, if we've improved, it's um, only because we have more of a, an awareness of what the, the shortcomings are and where we don't have the right infrastructure and resources to res respond to a distributed public health crisis of this magnitude. I don't think that there's been um, a major concerted effort to try to uh, reform institutions and deal with the more systemic problems, more systemic failings that led to this being um, a much worse experience for the United States than it otherwise probably should have been relative to what our expectations were and, and how we thought we had planned for something like this. Um, that needs to happen, but I think it's going to be very hard because ultimately any kind of reform of institutions like CDC and public health departments is going to be predicated on 
um, giving them more resources and in certain respects, more authorities. And I don't think you're going to get a political consensus to do that because there's a lot of skepticism of public health right now. And it's certainly more acute on the political right, but it's not confined to the political right. I don't know that you would have a political consensus in Congress right now on the right or the left to say, you know what, we need to give CDC new authorities and different authorities and new resources because there's so much skepticism of the way they performed. You know, I think ultimately the compromise is going to be trying to take some of these agencies like CDC and focus them more on the national security mission. And that would mean pulling out some of the things that they currently do and and reinvigorating some of the things that they have to do. So focus them on the disease control mission and maybe pull this, some of the prevention work out of CDC and give it to other agencies that I think could adequately do that mission. So smoking cessation work, I think, could, could be handled by FDA. A lot of the disease prevention work, like you know, working on trying to reduce rates of heart disease or obesity, I think could be handled by NIH or maybe the Assistant Secretary for Health. That would be very controversial because there'll be a lot of public health authorities, public health experts who don't want to see CDC lose any of its scope. Um, and then on the other side of the equation, there'll be a lot of political leaders who don't want to give CDC new authorities, new resources around that sort of disease control mission. But I think ultimately the way to reform the agency is to skinny it down and then give it more tools, more resources to do that remaining sort of national security disease control mission better. Um, but that's not going to happen, I don't think, in this political cycle. I think that's going to take probably another you know, national election um, to do that. We, we saw how controversial COVID was in this, in this election, where it really was, I think, an issue on the ballot, lower down, but I think it was an issue that people took into the election. And I think it may well be another political cycle before we move to a point where we can look back and be more sober about it and think about how to reform these institutions. Continuing the theme of looking at the future, but shifting gears somewhat, we're, we're in the midst of a biomedical innovation revolution uh, from therapies that recruit a person's immune system to fight cancer to those using CRISPR to treat genetic conditions. And you've already mentioned a number of others. So what are some of the key challenges that the FDA is going to face? Again, balancing this need to protect people and, and apply regulation appropriately, but also make sure that the opportunities that are brought about by this revolution uh, get to the benefit of people. Yeah, look, I think the FDA faces challenges across its entire portfolio. Right? You know, it doesn't have the authorities it needs, in my view, to adequately regulate um, the cosmetic space. There's legislation that would give the agency some new authorities there, dietary supplements. I talked about the Valid Act. But I think from my vantage point, one of the most exciting areas of medicine right now is what's happening in cell and gene therapy. I think for the first time we have the ability on a very a wholesale basis uh, to develop platforms and treatments that don't just mitigate the impact of the disease, but intervene in a way to fundamentally cure it. You know, we, we can, we're going to cure sickle cell disease in the next five years. We're going to cure type 1 diabetes. If I would have said that 10 years ago, people would have said that I'm being highly irresponsible. I say that now and people shake their head yes, people who are involved in this space. So I think that the those platforms are going to offer the ability to fundamentally change how we address a lot of vaccine diseases. But I think here again, the agency doesn't necessarily have the platform it needs to regulate that field in a very efficient way. And it's not, it's not just a matter of having the right policies 
to allow drugs or allow these cell and gene therapies to come through the approval process. I think a lot of that's in place. I mean, a lot of that we put in place, it's been improved upon since I left. I think where the agency um, is challenged in, is in having the expertise to, to regulate the product portion of that field. So what we call CMC, the chemistry and the manufacturing, where a lot of the um, ability to bring these products to market in a sort of cost efficient way and a lot of the ability to innovate the products themselves is very closely tied to how they're manufactured. The process for making them is the product in many respects. And I think a lot of the expertise that the agency has, first of all, it doesn't have a lot. Um, it's trying to hire more. But the challenge is there's not a lot of people who have this expertise and the people who FDA, at FDA who acquire this expertise are very quickly poached off the agency. Um, you know, we had a very hard time recruiting and retaining people with this kind of background because it's so sought after in industry. And so I think that that's the place where the agency is going to have the biggest challenges is in building out a team that can allow some of these these innovators to not just innovate sort of the, the, the product construct themselves, the gene therapy construct or the cell, but also how they're made um, so that we're not, we're not stuck with sort of, you know, 2019 manufacturing platforms for 2025 products. And that, to me, that's the biggest impediment right now in this field is that there is a reluctance to change how these products are made because of the uncertainty it's going to create and the inability of the agency to really efficiently deal with those new new platforms and that gets back to to the people and the ability to recruit the people with the the right expertise fda has them i'm not saying that they're not there but they're not there in a sufficient numbers to deal with the sort of scope of the opportunity set scott this has been such a wonderful discussion in in closing there are two questions i like to ask uh each of my guests and the first is from your vantage point uh, as a leader in multiple different areas, what are the most important qualities in a leader today? Well, I, you know, I think about, so I, I think about it um, from the vantage point of the FDA and what I did. And um, I think when you're a political leader running a complex organization like that, where the things that you're dealing with are highly complex no, no leader of an organization like that's going to have the requisite expertise to opine on what the agency is doing. And so your job is to in, interact with the people, the experts who are there, channel their good ideas and try to advance them. And so I really saw my job as being a champion for the agency's business and listening to the staff, recognizing that the ideas were going to come from the experts within the agency. Um, and in trying to advance those ideas on Capitol Hill in the policy space, while imparting um, a sort of broad view about what I thought the agency's kind of how the agency fit into the challenges of the day. And that gets back to the opioids and, and, and innovation and tobacco, where I saw that, that the agency, I saw a very aggressive role for the agency to play in trying to deal with those public health challenges, but ultimately the ideas on how we address them needed to come from the people. And so, you know, if you ask me what was the most important quality, it was listening. It was, it was going and meeting with people, talking to them, letting them, you know, tell me why I was wrong and, and being willing to take that feedback. And what gives you hope for the future? Well, it gives me hope for the future is just the, the, inflection point we're in when it comes to um, life science innovation. I, I think that there, there's no more exciting time 
to be alive. I mean, you know this, I know this. You think back the last 20 years in terms of the opportunity set that we see when it comes to a lot of these new platforms. Um, we're going to transform medicine in a lot of areas in the next 10 years. And I don't think there's been ever been a point, you know, over the last 20 years, certainly that I've been involved with FDA or 25 years where I felt that there was as palpable an opportunity to fundamentally alter the practice of medicine over a very short period of time um, with new innovations as, as we're sitting at right now. Scott, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com. And check out our website, theminerconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well and be kind.